Lord, does it seem that we are living in the last of the last days? Is there anyone out there who would say, amen, we, we certainly have to be, we certainly have to be approaching that gateway, passing through that doorway into a whole new age because, well, just look around. I wish that what has come to pass would pass. Anyone else? And you really need to look at life circumstances that way to realize that everything in your life has come to pass, not to stay. I look around and I see what has come to pass, and when the Bible says when these things begin to come to pass, I'm the one standing there saying, well, I wish it would pass because I don't understand an awful lot of what's going on around me. We are living in a whole new kind of crazy these days. Our world would be inconceivable to my grandfather, to most of his generation. I knew my grandfather well, grew up about 180 miles from them, so we saw them six times a year. My grandfather was a Pentecostal pioneer preacher on the East Coast, and uh, he, was, he was always wringing his hands, somewhat disgusted and disheartened, because he was sure that the sinfulness of America had led us to a place where Jesus had to come back within the next year or six weeks. He, was, he lived with this sense of it has never been so desperate. Can you imagine were he to be resurrected and put in this age, what he might think of things or what he might make of them? See, my grandfather's generation, they had a newspaper in the morning and they had Cronkite at 6 o'clock. Walter Cronkite. We have multi-channel, 24-7 news commentary, which is really infotainment. Every once in a while, the news gets, gets reported, but that's generally by accident. <laughs> my, grandfather was, my grandfather was sure that long hair on men was a precursor to the mark of the beast. He was sure that the world was going to hell in a handbasket, and it just couldn't get much worse. It's hard to imagine what he would make of our academic confusion over what is a boy and what is a girl. Romans chapter 1 says a good description, or it holds a good description of the debauchery of our culture, but also the insanity of our times. For when Paul opens with that chapter, and the first chapter is really worth reading, don't jump to the eighth chapter and start in the first. And in the first chapter, here's what Paul says of the days that are coming. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. So my granddad would be a little bit lost in the world of, well, bottled water. Anyone else out there remember when the concept, the idea that people would pay more for a bottle of water than for a can of Coke would have caused you to just scratch your head? Would you have believed it? Would you have believed it? What, bottled water, texting, sexting, don't even want to go there. I am, TikTok, Tesla, transgender. And then you have culture wars and you have immoral majorities and then you have the wild and weird and woolly world of woke. See, late in the life cycle of every generation, this is the truth, late in the life cycle, in the life cycle of every generation, there arises a conviction that it's never been so bad. 
never been so bad. Elders worry that the emerging generation is a mess and that times could not get worse, and then they do. And they have. And we are living in the midst of it. How then should we live? How then should we live? What attitudes should direct our lives? Where should our eyes be fixed? Where should our hopes be founded? Where should our efforts be poured? How should we live in these days? And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up, lift up your head, for your redemption draweth nigh. Now the things beginning to come to pass that Jesus speaks of in Luke chapter 21 describe a relentless onslaught of evil and crisis and convulsion. Listen to the language from the 21st chapter of Luke in the other verses. Nations rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There are earthquakes and pestilence. There are signs in the heavens, the sun, the moon. There's persecution. There are terrors. There's inquisition. There's family strife. There's racial hatred. All of it there in the 21st chapter. The very opposite of everything that is good in mankind is listed for us there in chapter 21 of Luke. The late Scott, the great preacher James S. Stewart, described what Jesus predicted. The days that Jesus said would come on the earth. Here's what Stewart said. In uh, intolerably grim and harrowing things. Things so troubling you can almost not bear thinking about it. Have you been there? Things so troubling that we see. They're so troubling that we can almost not bear to think about them. When all you can do is helplessly watch the human situation deteriorating and the frenzied altercations growing more and more turbulent and furious and the tide of violence mounting till it's rushing like a great river, when your mind is confused and your nerves reel and your spirit is in despair, then, said Jesus, look up, lift up your heads. James S. Stewart didn't write that in our generation. He wrote it 80 years ago as London was being bombed in the Second World War. As they looked upon their world and said, surely the end of the age is coming. Luke wrote almost 2,000 years ago, and it reads, it reads like today's news. Rome was about to reduce Jerusalem to dust. Jerusalem had been through some hard times. The Jews had known some, some bad, bad days. You read your way through the Old Testament, and it's not that the, the children of Israel didn't spend most of the time on the wagon and every once in a while fall off. Most of the time they had fallen off the wagon and were trying to find it. In the Old Testament, we have this idea that God's people were so righteous and so pure and so holy, and they were on occasion. Most of the time they were a mess living in the midst of the mess. And so Luke writes to these people who had been through a lot, and he says the days are coming, and then he has all of this cataclysmic language that he uses, and the people look around and say, really? What they didn't understand is within 30 years of Jesus, 40 years of Jesus ascending to the Father, Rome would march in and utterly destroy Jerusalem, and all of their hopes and dreams would be crushed and ground to dust. So when Jesus said, when you see these things begin to come to pass, it was almost immediately to be interpreted in history and has been interpreted over and over and over with almost every generation that wring their hands and say, it's never been 
want to offend anyone who's of age. I am now of age. I am now living in the third trimester of my life. Anyone else? Third trimester people out there. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm there. I'm there. I am of that generation. But friends, I speak to you directly and to me directly. The generation that is emerging right now needs to see in us hope. They need to see in us a biblical mindset. They need to see in us uh, eyes that are fixed on Jesus. They need to see in us faith that looks forward and trusts God in the midst of desperate situations. The generation looking to us does not need to see us laying down arms, but rather praying in the Spirit on all occasions. They need to see in us spiritual maturity that says, yes, the world is falling apart, but Jesus is coming in clouds of glory. They need to see in us hope. They need to see in us hope. And if they don't, if they don't find it there, where are they going to find it? When these things come to pass, it was real then when Jesus spoke it, and it's real now. Now, as we look at this text, as we begin to pull it apart, we need to understand that his words here carry first an underlying assumption and then two commands. There's an underlying assumption that we want to unpack and then two commands. This describes how we live for Jesus in a shattered world. First, the assumption. When these things begin to come to pass. The 21st chapter of Luke is built on the assumption that we would possess a situational awareness. The scripture that Je Jesus says, when you see these things come to pass, the assumption is that we're looking out there and interpreting our time. This is, this is the underlying assumption of Luke 21. When you see these things come to pass, the assumption is that we are a watching and praying people, that we are an eschatological people who look at things through the grid of Jesus coming back and his kingdom being fully, his, his kingdom being fully experienced. We, we are a people who are always looking to the skies, always looking for his appearing, always looking for his miracles, always looking for his help, always looking for his agenda, rather than people who are completely absorbed in what's going on in the world around us. The assumption, when you, it's, it's there in the text, verse 20, when you see, it's assumed that we're looking. When you see these things, verse 25, there shall be signs. Well, you won't see the signs if you're not looking for them. How many of you drive with your GPS most of the time now? I do. Every once in a while, I'm rolling down the highway into a place I've never been before, and I wonder, how in the world did I ever find where I was going before? I had Rand McNally, just like the apostles, Rand McNally. I could go to Rand McNally's map, and I could read the map, but I had to read the, not only did I have to read the map, I had to look for the signs. This morning, I drove to Albemarle from Salisbury, and I didn't look to any signs. I didn't pay much attention to the signs. I saw some interesting stuff along the way, but I didn't see too many signs. I didn't have to look at the signs because there was a voice with an Australian accent telling me where to turn. It told me where to do. every step of the way brought me right to the driveway, welcomed me to church, and gave me a cup of coffee. It was right there on my app. That's the way it works, right? But you become, you become immune to seeing 
the signs. And I think we're so wrapped up in what's going on around us that we have ceased to look for the signs. We have ceased to look at the world with a biblical worldview. We have ceased to understand that Jesus is indeed coming, that these things must come to pass, and that he will give us the strength that we need, the faith that we need, the help that we need, the provision that we need, and the hope that we need to live in the midst of the mess. Therefore, we can be joyful. Therefore, we can be the happiest people on the planet. Therefore, we can be effective. Therefore, we can have purpose because we know. We know that our lives are not wrapped up in everything that's wrong in the world. Amen? Are we friends now? We're moving forward. Good. The assumption is that we will carry an awareness of our time. So I would say to you, first point, those of you who like three-point messages and want to write everything down, first point, real simple, pay attention. Pay attention. Jesus made it clear that we should be aware of what is happening around us. Now, we cannot ignore our moral bankruptcy or the battered condition of the human race. We cannot pretend that all is well, that everything is running just beautifully, turning a blind eye to the brokenness and the wickedness around us. We cannot hide in our churches, united in our pious indignation of how evil the world is, leaving the world to the devil. No, no. We must open our eyes and take in the full measure of the cataclysm that Jesus describes. It seems to be now upon us. We have to open our eyes. But I've used the term aware very deliberately here, with great care. While we must be aware of our condition, we must not be consumed by it. Aware, but not consumed. The writer to the Hebrews says, we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated now at the right hand of God. That's where we fix our eyes. That's the consummation. That's what should that's what should be liberating our souls while we live with an awareness of the lesser things that are happening all around us. I don't see that often. I see people very much consumed with what's going on around them and only vaguely aware of the fact that Jesus is coming back. Hello, amen. We get you see, the balance has been completely shifted, and it's, it's thrown us off kilter, and so we've lost our message to the world because we're so wrapped up in what's going on with them, it's hard for us to tell them about him. Awareness, consummation, two totally different concepts. We've got them, we've got them confused. Have you experienced negative people in the church? Two or three? Just a couple, never. God bless you, sister. Living in a fantasy world. God bless you, sister. There's a lot of negativity in the church. Just a word, there are no open positions for doomsayers in today's church. Gloom is not a spiritual gift. There is absolutely no excuse in the kingdom of God. Now, there's an excuse if you're just talking about church, but there is no excuse in the kingdom of God for fatalism. 
We have plenty of negativity. By the way, we've got storehouses to spare of negativity. And our preoccupation with how bad it is does nothing but consume precious energy that should be poured out like you were pouring it out with Convoy of Hope. Reaching out to people. Don't look at the world and say, oh, it's all going to pieces. Say, this is the greatest opportunity we have ever had to touch people. Awareness is one thing. Distraction is quite another. You see, these things, all of these things that are going on in the world, all of these horrible things, and I'm right there with you. Some of it causes me to just scratch my head and say, there is absolutely, there is, there's a village someplace that's missing its idiot. I'm afraid we've put them into a position of power someplace and the policies are, are creating things that just cause me to scratch my head saying, what in the world is going on? And then I step back and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Luke 21 says this is exactly the way it's going to be in the last days. You see, these things should trigger a biblical response. They should spark a spiritual reaction within us. If these things are not faith, affirming signs to us, then the urgency of the hour will be ignored. Our duty to the next generation will be cast aside. Our opportunity for the kingdom of God will be squandered and lost. There is a need for balance in understanding the world that is broken and passing and the kingdom that is coming in power. There's a balance in understanding these things. Let me put it this way. Wilbur Rees helped me so greatly with this. He's long since dead and gone to the, to the Father in heaven. But in one of his old sermons, he helped me greatly as a young minister when I read these words. There are two things it, man must never lose sight of. One is the plight of man and the other is the power of God. One, he said it that the power of God and the plight of man. The power of God and the plight of man. I fear that we as Pentecostal churches have gone through seasons where we have struggled greatly to find the balance in this. If we focus so intently on the first, the power of God, we often miss the second, the plight of man. Let me put that in context. We want power. We want powerful revivals. Not necessarily revivals that get us out there winning lost people, but revivals that make everybody in church feel really good. Is that unfair? We often, we often want powerful services for us. We want the power of God. We want spiritual experience. We want spiritual ecstasy. We want all of these things. But if we focus so intently on the power of God, we miss the plight of man. We want power, but we divorce it from its purpose. Why was the power of God given on the day of Pentecost? Why was the Spirit poured out? The Spirit was poured out, so you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. You want to find a church that is truly Pentecostal, they're going to be sending people to the end of the earth because they understand where they are in their day, in their time, and they recognize their call. The power is given with purpose for us to deal with the plight of man in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, just a couple of points here in balance. If all we uh, see and seek is the power of God. And I'm talking about people who chase revivals. I'm good with you going to any revival that pops up any place at any time. That's great. Just don't become addicted to it. 
because before long you're going to be jumping on every bus and going everywhere that you just heard that something broke out, that you know someone's growing hair on a wooden leg, so you are on your way. You are on your way to that revival. You know, you're going to head up to Asbury. Great. I love what happened in Asbury, and I hope it continues, and it'll just break out. I'm all good with all of that, but we often go seeking experience, and we're chasing after all of those things, and we fail to recognize that we are in a battle for the souls of men. If all we seek is the power of God, we become, we become captive to what I will call a self-absorbed gospel. That's one end of the spectrum. A self-absorbed gospel. That the gathering's all about us. Sherry is my witness. This is my wife, Sherry. I failed to introduce her. Sorry about that, honey. That she, she was with me in a church where a guy about three rows back in a, a business session that I was conducting and he wasn't very happy with, he almost came over the pew just right behind her. And I remember in that moment, you do not want to mess with that woman. She will take you down. I don't care if you are a fisherman. You're going down. Just... Be careful. Keep your distance. I, I, I bring her along for protection. So she was there protecting me. And this guy, this pointed his finger at me. He said, this church is for us. I was stunned. I said, well, I'm not going to get into a theological argument with you, but I've got a major theolo theological problem with what you just said. Because this church is here for the world, a broken world. So if all we seek is the power of God, we are captive to a self-absorbed gospel. On the other hand, if all we seek is the plight of man, we've got to just deal with the plight of man, we get caught up in a social gospel. And it's all about what we can do, what we can do, what we can do, without recognizing that we can do absolutely nothing except for the power of his spirit. Without me, you can do nothing. Nothing, Scripture says. So we have to find a balance, the plight of man and the power of God. And when we get them in their proper element where of one we are aware and with the other we are consumed, the plight of man we are so aware and engaged, but the power of God we are consumed by these things, we find that balance where his power begins to flow in us and through us. We need the applied power of God to address the plight of man. You see, it's not about us. It's about him in us in the world. Let me just go a little bit further and just challenge your thinking a little bit. Is the power of the Holy Spirit for our enjoyment and personal edification, or is the power of the Spirit for the salvation of a lost and a broken world? It's a rhetorical question. I know you know the right answer. The power of God is poured out, it is given, it is channeled through us that we might be a blessing to the world. We have to find that proper balance. A century ago, J. Stuart Holden wrote these words. He said, spiritual ecstasy that is not translated to Christian energy bears no sign of divine origin or divine approval. That smokes just a little bit. Spiritual ecstasy, which is not translated to Christian energy. In other words, if all you've got is experience that never finds expression, it bears no image whatsoever of its giver or his purposes in the earth. The Spirit is given that we might break into a broken world. 
with liberating effect. You heard Jesus say when he said to open the prison doors and set the captive free in Luke chapter 4 as he stood there with all of the townspeople around him and he read, he read the prophecy from Isaiah and he said, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus said, this is who I am and this is what I do and that has not changed, only now he's doing it in the earth by the power of the Spirit through you and me or it is not getting done. Yet we have people who tend to bask in the glow of the Spirit's power like people on a beach working on a tan. Church is not a spiritual tanning salon where I just come in and improve my, my complexion a little bit. That happens a lot. I look better because I go to church. I'm a little happier because I feel relieved from some guilt because I go to church. We just kind of absorb it all, just kind of take it all take it all in his glory is not to be merely captured and absorbed his glory is to be received by us and then released by us we need both light of man power of God where do we fit in that equation we are those who operate in this power of the spirit that all men may know so we're not to ignore the world we're to be fully aware yet not consumed by it we need to pay attention when these things begin to come to pass for the underlying assumption is we'll see what's happening around it and proper around us and properly interpret it we need to pay attention and then what shall we do how shall we live do we abandon hope do we complain and despair do we hang our harps on the willows and unable to sing the lord's song in a strange land See, nothing's happening in the earth right now. Nothing's happening in the body of Christ or the people of God right now that hasn't already happened before in the earth. Not a bit of it. I got into a, quite a debate with, a, with someone a couple weeks ago when they said, well, times have never been worse. I said, well, what do you know about the Romans? <laughs> and their idea is everything that we're seeing right now is, is new and wow. And I thought, you know, I, I feel like I could upset your fragile little world with one book of history, not theology, just history. What do we do? Wring our hands in despair? What do we do? Or maybe on the other end, we just, we follow the new Epicureans where we just say, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. <laughs> you know, God will work it all out in the end. He'll sort it out. Well, wait a minute. Aren't we called to bear his light his love, his message, his power. In this world, aren't we called to that? Light of man, power of God. We have to understand our times and find this balance. Awareness of the plight of man being consumed with the power of God. And so how do we react? Well, the, the scripture says first, look up. Look up. When confronted by the signs, we are to step up to a higher level of awareness. When we see the plight of the world, we are to trust now in the power of God. We need, therefore, a full awareness that the world is what it is and it's coming apart at the seams, but an even greater awareness as to his promise, his power, 
his purpose in this world. So when we see these things happening, so I'm looking, say you're the world right now. Don't take this personal. All redeemed saints, all going to heaven, God bless you all. But right now, I'm saying you're the world. When I look out at the world, and this is what I see, the commandment to me now is to look up to the sound booth. You with me? It's higher. It's only eight feet up. Maybe we ought to go higher. But I take my eyes off of this level, and now I look up. I have to raise, I have to raise my level of awareness. I'm not just aware of what's going on around me. Now I'm captured by Jesus and his promise and his word and his purpose and his presence. I'm captured. I'm captured by the time that I spend with him. I'm captured by the fact that I know he's working all things together for good to those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. And by the way, that promise is not dependent on the economy. I know these, and because I know these things, I begin to operate on a higher level of, of awareness. Do I know what's going on around me? Sure. I don't have my head in the clouds, but I have my eyes on the king. When we've looked around and grasped our dilemma and we've grieved our loss and we've wept for our nation and for our families and for our churches, when we've been thoroughly nauseated by the political rot in our land, when we are stunned by breathtaking ignorance, by a godless academia, when we have looked around, then we look up. We've seen the natural and deceptive state of things. Now we must introduce spiritual realities. Spiritual realities. You see, the answers we seek can't be found in what the eye can see. Are you with me in this? The answers that we seek, the answers we need, are not going to be found in our own strength. There are no white knights riding out from the citadel of humanism. <laughs> Nothing good coming out of that. There are no earthborn saviors rushing to our rescue. Technological solutions cannot solve spiritual dilemma. It's not coming out of a lab. It's not coming from the university campus. It's not going to come from a political party. I don't care who they are. Left, right, center, down, up, blue, green. I don't care who they are. They don't have the answer to the spiritual need in the world. It is not coming from the billionaire's club because a trillion dollars today cannot cancel the debt of a single sinner on the face of this earth. We will never find hope by looking around us. There is no answer to be found. So we have to look up. We need a higher level of awareness. Malcolm Muggeridge, I hope you'll forgive him for being Catholic, but Malcolm Muggeridge came to faith very late in life, very late in life. And his background and his history was, you know, a... a kind of a dabbling in a friendship with Catholicism. He saw things that I think few theologians have seen so clearly. He's definitely communicated it better than anybody I've ever seen. Here's what he said. This is stuck in my mind for years. The world's way of responding to decay is to engage equally in idiot hope and idiot despair. Don't miss that. <laughs> idiot hope and idiot despair. On the one hand, some new policy...
know that in this world we have no continuing city. But we know, we know also that the future for the Christian is one that should cause us to live in this world with great joy. And that's what I think we've lost. Joy. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul describes a life that captures both realities, I think, our fractured world and his sustaining power. He seems to have both of these because he talks about this in the fourth chapter of, of 2 Corinthians. He says, we are troubled on every side. That's what. Troubled, that's awareness, isn't it? Anyone here troubled on every side? Maybe now you don't want to answer any questions. I understand, okay, but you can wink and I, I'll know. Troubled on every side, yet not distressed. Ooh. Man, Paul, that's radical. I am, he says, perplexed. Anyone else? Have you watched the news lately? I'm telling you, the reason I'm bald is I scratch my head so much. What in the world are they thinking? What in the world are they talking about? How in the world can they imagine such a thing? Perplexed, but not in despair. <laughs> I love this one. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. And then he says at the end of that chapter, chapter 4, 2 Corinthians, verse 16, he says, therefore we do not lose heart. Why, Paul? Why is it, Paul, that you don't lose heart? Paul, are, have you lost your mind, Paul? Paul, are you living in the fantasy world? Paul, have you lost your grip on reality? Paul, aren't you watching what's happening around you? Paul, you've been beaten with rods. You've been whipped to disfigurement. You've been stoned and left for dead. You've been shipwrecked. You've been snake bit. You've been in trouble in every arena of your life. You've been abandoned by your friends. You've been rejected by your brothers. And Paul, for all of that, Rome is not buckling under. You're headed for prison, Paul, or worse. You write, I don't lose hope, therefore we do not lose heart. Paul goes on to say, you see, the outward man is perishing. But the inward man is being renewed day by day. Day by day. <clears throat> you see, Paul was fully aware of the world around him. But he knew that no answer could be found among the sons of men, and we need to stop looking there. Paul followed the command of Jesus. When you see these things begin to come to pass, then look up. As you clearly see the plight of man, be even more assured of the power of God. Let cultural awareness be superseded by spiritual attentiveness. Look up. Look up. Let me just suggest to you, friends, that we could do with a whole lot less of Fox News, CNN, Twitter. We could do with a lot less. I got to be careful. Let me just throw them all in a bag together. Political commentators chasing political agendas looking for Christian votes, delivering none of their promises ever. 
We need to stop being suckered with every election cycle. The people who will stand up and say, we're going to vote, we're going to vote our conscience, we're going to try and vote biblically in everything we do. We want to be aware of all of these things, but we will not be consumed by it. We're not going to fight about it. We're not going to wrestle over it because our kingdom is not coming out of a political system that's anchored and oriented in this world. Our hope and our savior is coming from an awareness on a different level. It's a different level. So how do we respond? Well, we look up, and then finally, <laughs> Jesus said, lift up your heads. I did a little work in the Greek on this one. It's fascinating to me. It means literally, literally, unbend. You see, the idea is we become bent over with the cares of this world, and before long, all we see is what's going on around us. You walk bent over all the time and you'll really struggle to see the mountain. You with me? If you're always looking at your feet, you're not going to see what's coming and you're certainly not going to see a sunrise or a sunset. And so when it says, lift up your heads, and from the Greek language, the whole idea of unbent, it means literally. The Bible is telling us, you can allow me this, we going to be okay when I tell you, straighten up. It's time for the church to straighten up. It's time for us to look up and then throw your shoulders back and straighten up. It's time for you to quit apologizing for your faith. Straighten up. It's time for you to quit feeling as though the world's just got you by the throat and it's going to get you at any minute or that the, everything is going to hell in a handbasket and we just don't know what we're going. You just need to straighten up. You're looking at the wrong stuff. You got to get your eyes up and you got to get your shoulders back. Straighten up. As I study posture in the scripture, I see in the Old Testament where it says, I believe this is Psalm 3 and 3, that he is the lifter of my head. It says, lift up your heads. He's the lifter of my head. And the idea in that is that literally God reaches down in my sorrow and he lifts. Just think of somebody whose head is downcast. And you reach out and you put your, your, your hand under their chin and you just say, come on, come on now. Come on, my glory and the lifter of my head. I was shocked to find in the scripture that the only place we find the command to lift up our own heads is here in Luke when we're looking at the last times the last days. Now, you'll find lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up. That, that's not quite right. That's not the same thing. The only place in the scripture that we are specifically commanded straighten up is when we are looking at these last things. When you see these things begin to pass, look up and now unbend. Lift up your heads. The Greek further reveals in all of this, the language is helpful to us. The, the, uh, it's aorist, active, imperfect, and the idea is something has happened, something happened then, or something is happening even now that's going to give rise to something in, in the present and the future. So when you see these things come to pass, these things are happening now. This is the, so what was the language tells us and also the commandment of Jesus. This is the correct response to a dying world. Head up, 
shoulders back, not broken, not perplexed, not on our faces, not struggling, not complaining, not grumbling, not whining, shoulders back, heads up, eyes looking to Jesus. Lift up your head. See, we've got to get our eyes above the fray because the Democrats, the Republicans, social media, and anti-social media have nothing for us. Nothing. We, have, we, we are commanded to cease from our self-absorption, our self-serving, our self-promoting. We are to cease from our slouching as those who are oppressed. We're not to bow to culture. We're not to lay down the weapons of our warfare. We're not to wring our hands or lose our minds or run away or give in. We are to look up and lift up our heads. Jesus is commanding that we tap into a higher level of awareness, a fresh awareness of his word, a fresh awareness of his promise, a fresh awareness of his presence. You see, Spending time in his presence should do something. It should change our attitude. A moment ago, I said like a father speaking to a child, you need an attitude adjustment. Why am I an expert in this? Because I have felt the finger of the, my heavenly father saying, son, you need an attitude adjustment. Those attitude adjustments often come when I spend time in his presence. A few moments ago, we sang this testimony to the Lord. All my life you have been faithful. All my life you have been so, so good. You have simply testified of everything he has been until now. Are you going to walk out those doors and go, but I just don't know about tomorrow? Right? He commands us to stand in his presence where all of a sudden our eyes aren't going to be caught up in the things of this world, but they're going to arise to a, a higher level. He wants a fresh awareness of his power and why he gives his power and where he shares his power as it's connected to his purpose. See, he commands us, lift up your head, square your shoulders, straighten up and live with confidence. Why? Okay, you've walked with me through the text fairly good. You've stayed with me, okay? When these things begin to come to pass, there's an assumption there, isn't it, that we're paying attention. When these things come to pass, then look up, higher level of awareness, spiritual awareness of, of, of awareness, and then our posture changes. Shoulders back, head up. Not necessarily proud, but strong. Why? Your redemption draweth nigh. Absolutely. Because your redemption draweth nigh. Something's coming. Someone's coming. Your redemption. You see, the cross forever sealed the nature of your destiny and God's plan and purpose. It is forever guaranteed in what happened. We are not preserving the cross. The cross can never be defeated. The cross can never be erased. The cross can never be pushed off of the stage of human history. We are, we are not a people who are worried that the gospel is going to cease in the world. Not the cross. The 
cross is established forever and ever and for all eternity. And in all of our worship in heaven, we'll be celebrating the lamb who is, was slain, but is now risen and rules and reigns. Seated on the throne of God. We're never going to get away from that. The victory does not hang in the balance. But the way we live. See, Jesus was saying to his disciples, it's about to get really hairy. Boys, it's about to come apart. He said stuff to them that sounded so crazy. I stood at the walls of Jerusalem a few years ago. And I looked at those massive walls. We're really looking at the foundation of the walls when Jesus was there because above them, the crusaders had come in and they built them up even higher. But standing you know, just outside the walls of Jerusalem, and I remembered the words of Jesus when he said to his disciples 30 years before it happened, not one stone, you see all of this? Not one stone will remain on another. And so we were outside the walls and we went down through a side gate down to the bottom of the walls and we walked along a Roman street that had been excavated from the time of Jesus. And as we're walking along the street, they left there massive piles of stones that were bigger than Volkswagens. These massive stones that the Romans in 70 AD had literally pushed off the foundation platform. They had fallen down onto that Roman street below cracked and, and crumbled that Roman street. Now, archaeologists have gone in and they have cleaned all of that up and excavated the whole thing, but they have left these massive piles of stones. And the Jews have done it to say, this is what the Romans did to our city. But for a Christian standing there, the word of God comes alive, uh, alive in your mind where Jesus said, not one stone will remain on another. I walked right over and I said, somebody take my picture. I laid my hands on the biggest stone that I could find because I wanted to look back at it and say, the surety of God's word, the reality of God's word, the promise of God's word, what he has said about then, he has said about now, and he has said about what is yet to come. And as a believer in Jesus Christ, I'm going to throw my shoulders back and walk with confidence in this dark age. Why? Why? Because I've been called to awareness, but also I'm facing the consummation. I am one who will not I will not be discouraged, I will not grieve, I will not groan, I will not moan, for I know, I know that my Redeemer lives and my redemption is drawing nigh. Is there anyone in the church today who would say an amen? Let's be done, let's be done, let's be a people who say, okay, it's time for us for, an, you know about inoculations, the last couple of years we've had a few of those, haven't we? What do they do? They give you a, a little inoculation that makes you, wouldn't it be great if we could all be inoculated against grumbling? Okay, 70% of you want to line up for that inoculation. The other 30, I'm not sure. I want to be vaccinated. I want to be vaccinated against hopelessness. I feel like we just need to be vaccinated again as people who just get a good dose of the cross. People who are so full of Jesus that we have confidence no matter what comes down the road that he directs our steps. Surely a moment ago you sang it, and team, would you come? A moment ago you said, your goodness is running after me. It's running after me. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? I hope so. 
I'm in a different church every week, and I've got to tell you, I see people sing the words of the songs, and sometimes I want to just stop the service. I don't. Rick's asked me not to do that. But sometimes I would like to just stop the service and say, whoa, let's stop right there. I would like to just turn around and address them and say, I'm reading the words on the screen right now, and you're singing them. Does anybody believe a word of this? I've looked out there. I've seen them sing some, some of our militant songs. You know, we're going to tear down the gates of hell and sort of the, we've got the whole thing going. And man, people get all fired up and everything else. But they never do anything. We can sing the words easily. It's another thing to go and do it. It starts, though, with a change well, the world is going to pot. Jesus said it would. Surely he has positioned us for such a time as this. Just a little while longer, he's coming. Father, I pray for AFA. I pray, Lord, for Pastor Nate and Shauna and for this great church. I pray, oh Lord, that now coming out of this crazy season we've been in with COVID, they have a new platform. They have a new foundation. I pray, Lord, that you would grow this church up, being absolutely consumed with the love of God, directed at the plight of man, that we might be found as a people who are ready when you come and when you call us. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us to keep things in balance and guard our hearts from being poisoned by the world. Guard our hearts should we, Lord, begin to act or speak like people who do not have faith. But I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would stir us to a new mindset, that you would help us in attitude adjustment, that we would be a people who are longing for your appearing and loving you.